You're listening to the Co-Creator Network. When you change the way you look at things, the things you look at change. Good afternoon. Welcome to Why Shamanism Now, a practical path to authenticity with your host, Christina Pratt. Director of the Last Mask Center for Shamanic Healing. She's talking about how shamanic skills can bring us to physical, emotional, mental, and spiritual well-being, especially when nothing else can. Now, here's your host, Christina Pratt. All right. So we're going to continue here in part two of our show on ancestral medicine, rituals for personal and family healing with Daniel Four. Um, so, Daniel, as we closed last week's episode, um, we were just checking in to see if there were any other um, sort of the big foundational things people really need to understand to engage in ancestral healing. You're asking are there, what to recap about that? No, um, if there's just anything else we haven't covered. Well, nothing I can think of, just the importance of bringing a sense of discernment and safety to the work, reaching out for some framework, some some support around it, and making sure that we understand that not all the dead are equally well. As a shorthand reminder, think of the dead like the living. You wouldn't trust a living human just because they happen to be incarnate. And so don't trust the dead just because they're in spirit form or they appear to you. You would have the same level of discernment you would have with living humans. That's it. I think we covered the other main things. Um, I like to tell people, you know, just because they're dead doesn't mean they're any smarter than they were when they were living. (laughs) No doubt. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. So why don't you take a moment now and just describe for people the essence, you know, of the process with you. As you were saying, this is a process that isn't about getting involved in other people's ancestral lines, but actually a person... Um, working with theirs. So why don't you take a moment and, and a long moment if you want to and just kind of describe what you're, what you're presenting for people. The five steps in the process, which correspond to chapters five through nine of the book. The first is to assess what kind of condition your ancestors, your recent and more distant blood ancestors are already in in spirit. How are they? Are they already deeply at peace or something other than that? And if it's something other than that, to respectfully have a boundary with them for now until they become more well, to understand how strongly they're affecting you and other living family members and then decide which lineage you would choose to focus on in a human way. The second step is to connect with much older ancestral guides and teachers, ones who are well, ones who live before the troubles. And that's often anywhere from 500 to 2,000 years ago, depending on your ancestral history and timeline where your people are from. But the ones who live before the recent cycle of colonialism and uh, disconnection from earth-honoring ways. And in partnership with them, the third and fourth steps are to bring healing to the lineage between them and the present. And so the ones close to you in time, deceased parents, grandparents, the ones who lived right after, the older ancestral guides, all those who are not fully well-seated in the healed, bright ancestral lineage, the heart of the work is helping them to then become well. And that happens through the process of the older ancestors' guide, and it happens from the past toward the present, and is a kind of structural repair of the lineage itself. So we're approaching the mystery of the dead not on an individual level, but on a lineage level. And once all of those along the lineage are in that really safe and well and healed range in spirit, then to invite a reset of their energy as it lives in your body, to invite there to be a healing of their legacy in your own body, and then to gently embody that blessing in prayer for the living family. So you become comfortably the face of your people, wish well for your living family, even if they're difficult people. And at that point, you've arrived at square one along that lineage. You're out of ancestral deficit. 
because your people are now reseated in a healthy and well condition. And repeat that with your other lineages. I tend to work with four main bloodlines as a start. And then once that's well, make sure they're well harmonized with one another and, you know, stop fixing it. Enjoy a relationship of maintenance and joyful support from your people. So that's, that's the essence of the repair work. And it's, it's quite doable. And it's a good on a personal family level, but it's also good culturally. It's a kind of repair of some of the damage of colonialism and disconnection from the earth. So. So let's talk about that, both of those things. So, so as people are doing this work with their own lineage, how does that then, uh, what, what's your, your experience of how that begins to sort of connect over into how it begins to repair things on a larger cultural scale? Yeah, it can look so many different ways. Uh, and for, People, let's say, who have not had sweetness or nurture. I mean, it can look like psychological healing for people who haven't had kindness from their family, for example, to know that there's kindness from their ancestors. It's a way of seeing that there's actually goodness in their heritage and, by extension, in their body. Because when you have a negative perception of your own ancestors, it's a kind of body, it's a kind of rejection of your body saying my blood and bones connect me to something harmful and negative. So it contributes to a kind of dissociative lack of connection to the body, which plays into a lack of felt connection to the earth, etc. On the flip side of that, let's say, give an example, let's say someone is uh, gay, lesbian, bisexual, or maybe uh, they're trans or queer or not conforming to binary gender. Uh, they may be very judged by their culture, or family, or both, and feel that who they are is a source of outsiderness compared to their family. But when dropping in with the ancestors, sometimes those individuals may find that what they thought was a source of difference in a painful way is actually an ancestral inheritance, that their gender variance or their different sexual orientation is a, a gift. It's not a new thing in their family lineages. So that can flip from being outsider and spiritually isolated to a sense of identity and inclusion, even if the living family is not embracing of that. Uh, similarly, a lot of people, whether it's European or other ancestors, have been taught to devalue the older, pre-Christian, pre-Muslim, whatever it is, roots of their people, that those are less evolved, less spiritual, less whatever. And that kind of religious arrogance and sometimes racism can be uprooted by, in part by coming into relationship with the older ancestors who are like, oh, we never went anywhere. We're right here. We would, we would love to be in a relationship with you. Of course, it doesn't magically transform all the systemic cultural racism and sexism that lives in the present, but coming into direct relationship with spirits, energies that are connected to family and which embody these older mysteries and blessings, uh, that's, that's part of it. Uh, that can be very resourcing and uh, connected. So that's, that's a short answer. It's a big, it's a big question. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Is, there, is there a bigger part of that answer that you want to take some time to dive into? Well, um, the way that I am framing you know, I've, I've done a lot of work focused on personal and family healing, the ancestors. And I guess I would say that until your direct lineage ancestors are relatively well in spirit, which could take a minute if no one's been tending to them, it's going to be tough to leverage your own ancestors for larger cultural healing. Because it's like the, the wellness of your own lineages can't sustain that yet. They need to be well themselves. But once your own ancestors are really resilient and well, one of the directions they may take you and your life is as a, to participate in uh, larger cultural repair. And I'm, I work from a basic framework of a half dozen cultural toxins or fault lines or woundings that tend to recur throughout human history. 
and are quite present in the United States. And I would say our current administration embodies all of them. So the first, and, the, and these aren't, these are coexisting troubles. One is disconnection from the earth and a tendency to objectify other than humans. And even many activists, social justice-minded people who are mostly awesome and sometimes really righteous in an unhelpful way participate in erasure and silencing of the voices of other than humans. You can be very proactive in supporting the rights and voices of diverse human people, but if you objectify the voices of the salmon and mountains and wind, etc., then you're still missing part of the picture. And so reclaiming in our own blood lineages our capacity to relate with the other than humans is one challenge or kind of cultural repair. Another is the, the long history of resource inequality of greed uh, that expresses as dysfunctional forms of modern capitalism and the, all the wounding of poverty, scarcity. Another is sexism, patriarchy, which includes being homophobic, transphobic, having a really narrow understanding of gender identity, being sex negative or shaming rather than sex positive. And so that whole umbrella of troubles around sexism and violence toward women, misogyny, etc. A fourth kind of wounding that the ancestors can be helpful in repairing is around religious extremism and the arrogance that comes from thinking that your way of viewing the sacred is better than others and uh, the violence that can result from that. Another is the harms of colonialism and physical occupation of others' land and the way that can play out in genocidal ways. And a final big wounding would, would be racism, and the, and which can be based on uh, color. And essentially, you know, we're talking about white supremacy. Or it can be based just on the view that your ancestors are better than other people's ancestors. Uh, and And so... All that's plenty to work with, of course, but once your personal family ancestors are more well, they may wish you to participate in metabolizing some of those larger collective level toxins. And the sooner we humans can metabolize those troubles, the more we can culturally get things back on track and try to stop the hemorrhaging of extinction on this planet that we're driving right now. And, and and another way to say, in a sense, this last piece Daniel just said, is that another reason that these problems seem so persistent is because we're not engaging in the ancestral healing necessary to support the wellness that is necessary as the platform to then dive into this healing. You know, and that in people people wonder why you know we don't make much headway around this, and it does seem for all the good work being done to to not go anywhere. I I feel really strongly that the well ancestors are a missing demographic in a lot of really essential activist work. Having said that, many doing that kind of work do call on their ancestors. They are including them. But I don't think it's an openly discussed and often included element. And I view a lot of the cultural trouble we're trying to metabolize as ancestral in nature. Our ancestors created the problems or lived through them in different ways. And so to call on them to participate in the repairs is, is natural. They want to help. And much of the repair itself includes helping the dead who are not yet well to become well. And to, yeah, to ancestralize the ones who experienced hardship or who carried it out and feel stuck and remorseful in spirit in a way that's actually no longer constructive. So. Yeah, we, it, working, making sure the ancestors are well is a bit about being all the way in the present. And uh, not just individually, but ancestrally. 
So, and it's important, it's important as speaking as a North American or, you know, American white guy, our nation, the United States is, is decisively founded on the double genocide toward native and African ancestry people. And those behaviors that were exported from Europe didn't come out of nowhere. European society before colonization was a slave society. Viking culture was a slave society. Romans had slaves. I'm not saying it's exactly the same as how chattel slavery in the Americas played out, but the roots of the troubles are are old often. And so there's a need to go back to access what is blessed and good and whole in our lineages, call that forward, and insist that the ancestors participate in helping us to, to be whole people now and know how to usefully contribute to the cultural healing. And I think that there's a piece that you've, you've addressed, but I want to pull it out even more more clearly, is that these very ancestors who who may feel stuck and remorseful about the manifestation of these things, once they are, you know, the ancestors can change. So once the dead change and they get lifted, let's say, from being in that one to three group to the seven to ten group and can actually function as a proper ancestral helping spirit, they have the, the very sort of precise perspective that can be profoundly helpful with these exact issues, having deep, deep understanding of having been on the other side of them. And, and That's that, right. that is so challenging for us. We just think, oh, this person was just an ass. I don't want anything to do with them. But they're a very particular kind of ass, <laughs> right? That once right. they're healed they're, and they're, freed they're, from that, they're really clear. Another way of thinking of it is like the dead themselves are called by the older well ancestors to engage in a kind of restorative justice or reparation, if you will. That doesn't alleviate the relevance of people, living people in the present to also participate in cultural repairs, whether it takes a form of reparations per se or takes other forms. But the ancestors are continue to exist as people in a sense. They're just not physically incarnate people. And just as, just when someone who's kind of a jerk and then really gets it is like, oh, geez, I think I'd better find a way to be useful. That's what's called for. I'm done being an ass. The dead can have that same kind of process. And it's important to allow for that. Otherwise, we sit in judgment of them in a way that actually keeps the system stuck. We become part of the problem. Because we're saying, I am correct. My ancestors are incorrect. I'm on the side of the right. They're on the side of the wrong. It sure feels excellent to be so correct. I just feel so special and important. People aren't going to say that out loud. But righteousness is an energy to be really mindful of. It can it can cast a long shadow. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, I I could not I mean we could just sit here and agree with each other for the weeks <laughs> about this particular point. I I don't think either one of us could express it more vehemently and it 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 is I, I mean I personally believe it is the missing element like you said they're the missing um cohort really in this effort to make these cultural changes is the dead the 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 reconciled dead helping us yeah yeah I feel that way personally I would say that every interaction we tend to construct ourselves in the west as individuals and it's just Oh, it's problematic in all kinds of ways. Of course, we have choice, and we're responsible for our choices, but the idea that we're somehow separable is is really um, it's delusional. And, and so another way to frame it on an ancestral level is that every interaction, whether it's between you and I, here at Christina, or between us and your listeners, or your listeners and their neighbors, it's an interaction between that individual and all their ancestors and the other living human individual and all their ancestors. And so that means a lot's at stake, actually. Every interaction is a kind of ancestral diplomacy that the living are carrying out with one another. And if we had that level of care and gravitas to the interactions, 
that, that alone could help. You'd see, and it, it would help, for example, it would help defensive, reactive white people who, you know, who play out what some people would call white fragility to understand that, look, if you're being related with as a generalized white person rather than as a unique individual in that moment, take a real deep breath because there's actually a great opportunity in that. And if you can, if you and all of your ancestors can show up with humility and open-heartedness in a constructive way, provided there's some opening for that, it could be a really beneficial kind of diplomacy between you and all your people and whoever's coming at you with heat and all their people. So, yeah, all, all of our interactions are ancestrally observed, as it were. It's good news. And then, it's it's kind of weighty, but it's good news. Yeah, it, it is good news. It, it, I mean, because it makes the impossible possible. That's always good news. Yeah. Um, now, I can also imagine those who would say, "Well, if the these seven to ten uh, ancestors are so fabulous, why don't they just fix their mess?" And yeah, it's a very I common think, question, and there yeah. are answers to it. I, the answers that I have. I'm not saying it's definitive, but one of them is that they're they're polite. They haven't been asked. There's an etiquette. And so why haven't you fixed it? Well, you never asked me to. So that's part of the answer. Another is that we haven't been tending to, to the relationship. So if you're working, for example, for somebody, and you don't get paid for like a thousand years, you might feel less enthusiastic about working for that person. So some of it is the lack of tending to the relationship. And another is that there's a circuit or a link that needs to be completed with the living somehow. We do have a role in it. It's hard to describe exactly, but for us and them to come into relationship, it it completes a circuit that needs completed. We need to have a role in it. And another answer is that they have been helping they're part of what's been holding the world together. Things could be even worse. And so they are helping. But the idea that somehow the ancestors are like the Christian God and they're supposed to be all powerful, that's just not how, it's not how I see it. It's not how anyone I know sees it. And, um, so there's no, there's no other that's going to come save us exactly. But there are relationships we can enter into which can be healing and beneficial. Beautiful. All right. So with that said, let's look at the other um, piece that you brought up, which is the sort of deeper ramifications of our, our the, the living's willingness to do this work with our ancestral lines, this kind of um, uh, healing and, and integration and, and reconnection, which is, you know, as you've said, it's not simple. You don't get to do it all in a weekend, but you can certainly learn how to begin to do it. Sure. Um, but with that said, so once we once we understand the need for that level of the wellness in our own lineage, what then are the ramifications with the earth and um, that sort of cataclysm happening? <laughs> so. Well, I don't know. I don't. I don't presume to know what's happening with the earth and all that. People ask me that, and. I see the opportunity to use my position to presume to know. Um, I sense that I don't have the view that the good outcome is is assured. Um, of course, we could have maximum doom scenario and somehow wipe ourselves out as humans. I don't think it's that likely, but it's possible. Um, things are definitely going to get harder in the next cycle of time because of the lack of systemic change, this change that's happening, and the um, just the number of people, and and so I think that those who are keeping older ways of knowing alive and frameworks of relating with spirit alive are have an important role to play in what's coming, and the need is for as many people as possible to come back into relationship with the other than you. And to hit the brakes on how we're living in a way that's so harmful to them. 
all all of the trouble that is playing out in unjust and fatal ways with from between different humans is playing out with the relationship between the humans and the other than humans and so um, we need to be as whole as we can to engage those kinds of repairs and the ancestors can help us to bring that kind of wholeness and intactness I think the say the other than humans tend to trust people who are ancestrally disconnected less so if you want to go deep with your connection with the trees and the you know other than humans then get well with your ancestors and the other than humans will trust you more because you're more yeah you're safer looking so um in the third section of the book, you begin to explore honoring other types of ancestors who are not related by blood. Um, would you like to share a bit about what what that's about and and just the the value of doing it? Sure. Uh, there are so many other kinds of human ancestors that could be relevant. For example, ancestors of place of land where we're at. Ancestors of spiritual lineage. I mean, I, I have an affinity with Yoruba ancestors as an initiate in Ifa Arisha tradition, although I'm not Yoruba by blood. Ancestors of vocation, like if you work as a teacher, scientist, healer person, you may find ancestral healers, teachers, scientists that inspire you. And so it's my bias that it's best to be well with your ancestors of blood before engaging a great deal ancestors of spiritual lineage or, or of, uh, sorry, these other kinds of ancestors in general. Ancestors of spiritual lineage are perhaps you know, safer to relate with because presumably they're remembered because they're quite awake and well. But it's look, it's my habit with this work to approach the dead as groups or lineages rather than individuals. It's a difference in even how a lot of people relating with ancestors in the West approach them. There's a lot of people who really approach them as individuals, which is fine, and it's not my place to be judgy of that, but it feels somehow less safe or less like a given that they're going to be well for us to relate with. Um, so, you know, for example, honoring ancestors of place, unless you're 100% native, American and living in the United States and living in the traditional tribal territory of your people, which is a pretty small demographic. So unless that's the case, there are ancestors who have lived and loved and are part of the land where you're at that are not related to by blood. But they're still an important part of the ecology of spirit and of, of the land there. So giving respect to them is great. And I think introducing your own ancestors to them is one respectful way to approach that. If you don't know your own ancestors, it's harder to do that. Um, but, uh, yeah, there, I mean, the relating with ancestors who are not related to by blood can become its own whole specialization. And it's my, it's my angle that people immersed in ritual ought to be at least a little bit proficient in relating with the ancestors, and, and only some are called to specialize in it. Sorry, you, it feels like it's a very gen a general answer, but um, there's so many different kinds of other ancestors, it's hard to know what to speak to. Sure, but maybe maybe what would help listeners is just to share, you know, share a story of, like, how something shifted in someone's life when they introduced their... They, they, they did invest in the wellness of their blood first, and then they began to introduce those ancestors to the ancestors of place. What happened? Well, you I mean, not that actually, a million different things couldn't a, happen. But, there's yeah. a, a friend in California, Greg, who's a Maloney and Salinan person, and uh, he was speaking at a conference once and said that, and it's a native California person, and said that in some ways, some folks in his community were still in the moment of first contact. 
And at least what I what I took him to mean, I think it's what he meant, is that because there hadn't been an initial respectful greeting between the recent arrivals from Europe and other Russia, other places, and Native North Americans, like you know, you're at a party and you're talking to someone and you're like, we we haven't entered, we haven't met, like what, like back up, you need to say hello first, and so if one can slow down and observe proper respect and protocol and etiquette and actually ritually introduce your own people to the ancestors of the place or if circumstances allow for it, the living representatives of those ancestors, it's possible that the depth of relationship with the other than humans opens up more widely because the human ancestors can function as gatekeepers in our connection with the other than humans. The spirits whose bodies are nature in any given place. And if you're well with the native ancestors of a place as a non-native person, it's my sense that your direct connection with the spirits of the land can go deeper. As long as you stay in good relationship with those ancestors of place. So it, it can, it's not just enjoyable and respectful to give acknowledgement to who's already there, but you, uh, and, and it's the same in how, when I was speaking of earlier, don't be such a fragile white person if less white people just, you know, see you as an embodiment of whiteness. It might be annoying in the moment, but breathe through it, and there's an opportunity. It, the spirits of a place, understandably, would see you as human in the same way. You're like, yeah, we might see that you're a little more conscious, but since we got you on the line, let us say how ill-behaved the humans here have been. And so if you get some of the heat that ideally is directed toward other humans, well, that's an invitation, that's an opportunity to deeper trust and relationship and gratitude to the even earlier humans and ongoing Native peoples who generally have much better etiquette toward the spirits of place and establish some human cred with the other than human spirits there. So the way the spirits of land respond to humans is going to be shaped by the way humans in general have been behaving in that place. That's unavoidable. It's fine. Surrender to it. Work within it. You can rebuild trust if you work within that. It's kind of another aspect of what you were saying about the effectiveness of working with these energies as lineages because they frankly work with us as a group. They don't, you know, <laughs> it's like, oh, we got a human on the line. Let's talk about all of humanity now. And they do that. And it's challenging, but it happens. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Well, I, we're, uh, we're, of course, our individuals our individual selves, and we're also this universal, it's one thing talking to itself on the interview and listening to itself and all that. Those, those are both true, but there's an intermediate setting which is also quite true, where I'm a privileged white male American cisgendered person, uh, you know, other kinds of privilege as well. And, and, and I'm not other things. I'm not a woman. I'm not Mexican. I'm not, you know, any number of other things. And I'm never going to be. And I don't, I can't presume to represent those experiences. And that's fine. We have to be in our specificity and to be our unique individual self if we want to enjoy real relationship. Because we don't, we don't love in the abstract. We don't love others. We love specific others. We have specific relationships. It's not just abstract. So to just have psychological health and intimacy means inhabiting our specific place and all that ancestrally is implied in that, which can be daunting and heavy. But look, if you're a white person, it's part of, like, just embrace that as a starting point and then start to investigate what happened. What are your specific lineages? what accountability in the present is implied from that. Are your ancestors well? If not, are you actually willing to help them? It's a doable thing, etc. 
So, mm-hmm. so let's um, continuing on this, m- making this a little more palpable for listeners. So, imagine, right? And uh, can you share another story about someone who did? engage in the work with their lineage ancestors and then began to open in some way to uh, to the ancestors of their spiritual lineage and how that shifted things for them sure if folks connect with their own blood ancestors and see that there's a tremendous amount of blessing and beauty in that for one they may be less inclined to look outside of their blood lineages for spiritual traditions and teachers and belonging. Totally not saying it's bad to look outside that, but if you get to know your own older well ancestors, then you've taken more thorough inventory about what is available to you. For myself, despite just loving my older, witchy European people, the level of fragmentation of European pagan earth honoring traditions is advanced enough or high enough that I just made a call that I, I don't want to try to operate within those systems personally and massive respect to those who are doing it. As someone who practices a tradition that's not of my blood ancestry, being awesome with my own ancestors helps me to approach with a more neutral and just available attitude. When I'm in Nigeria, I don't feel better or worse than my Yoruba family and hosts and teachers there. We're able to approach from a mutual respect for our ancestors and who we are. And so when when people who don't have uh, available religious culture that resonates with them in their recent ancestry still do the work to get well with their blood ancestors. It allows them to approach spiritual traditions that are not of their blood with more wholeness and integrity instead of being a needy ghost that shows up at Sweat Lodge and is like, are you my mother? Are you like, are you are you indigenous people just perfect because you're native? And of course, native people are just people. And so it's a clingy, off-putting, awkward ghosty white person thing that can be avoided if we just deal with our own ancestors. If you do that, you can approach other traditions in a more neutral way, and you can also ask, hey, ancestors of my blood, do you give your blessing for me to go deep in yogic traditions or whatever? Traditions where we're invited to participate, it can be done with a blessing from our own ancestors. And so then do you have a story of, that you could share with a similar person, done their work with their, um, not to diminish the scale of it, but nonetheless, they've, they've done good work with their bloodline ancestors and then have turned to introduce them and connect with their ancestors of vocation and how that might have changed someone's life. Yeah, that's a good question. Ancestors and vocation. I, uh, I, I feel in my, I, I just look at to myself for an example. I'm sure there are others that I can think of, but in this moment, um, as an initiative Ifa, I feel aware in a sort of intimidating way of the lineage of diviners, of Babalaos and Ifa priests before me. And so that's, it's a vocation. And there's a, it's not that I'm seeking that exactly, but I'm slowly growing into that capacity to serve it in that way. And that's not of my blood, but my blood ancestors are kind of like, oh, that's interesting, that's witchy, we like that. And I've dreamt of um, bearded old white people in Europe speaking about Arumala, who's a sort of Ifa or divination. And so if you sit long enough with your own blood ancestors and ancestors of a different lineage, they tend to start to come into a deep and beneficially blended relationship in a lot of ways. Like they get to know each other. There's a kind of diplomacy that happens in the other world. And it's good. I think, personally, I think when invited, when done with respect, it's good for white people 
to deeply train in other systems because it it changes us and there is a uh, I'm generalizing now to us as white people but uh, I'm a fan of cultural exchange when done with respect and when really rooted in relationship and I think there's a kind of ancestral uh, diplomacy that prevents um, inflation. It can be a preventative to war and cultural conflict. It's a very ancient practice of marrying intertribally in order to keep peace or of exchanging people across cultural boundaries in different ways. And and I think there's a way to, to hold it like that in the present. Um, I know your question about vocation. Um, I can only, in this moment, it's just, it occurs to me to speak from my own experience as a, sure. a ritualist and seeing that as an Ifa initiate, my own blood, blood ancestors like how adept the Yoruba ancestors are at ritual. And for that reason, mm-hmm. they get their blessing for me to go train in those ways. Like they get why, why I'm doing it. Mm-hmm. Well, and you're bringing up an important point within this this telling of this story, which is that humanity has a long history of cultural exchange for deep and valuable reasons. And there's a tendency in the vitriol of contemporary, what passes as contemporary debate, um, when we start talking about appropriation, it's as if cultures never exchanged anything ever in all of time. And that then that it's not an option. And, and I find that somewhat frustrating in, in actually yeah. having, a, you know, a really valuable conversation about appropriation, which is theft and is a problem. But there is also what you're describing, which is cultural exchange, which has a long history with humans on the planet. And as you it's said, true. it's, it's a, it's a big layered topic. I'm actually guiding a talk this evening called Practicing the Traditions of Other People's Ancestors. And we're going to get into that as someone who practices the traditions of Yoruba people and is in deep, sustained relationship with Yoruba people, learning Yoruba, sends money back to Yoruba land, and it's possible to be in good relationship in that way. Not all traditions welcome that, and the conditions are very different in different places. But to say that I've had white Americans offer to tell my Yoruba teachers that they should not share their traditions with non-Yoruba people because it's wrong. I'm like, wow, the hubris. Like, Mm -hmm. you know what? Just because, you know, there's there's an exporting of the dynamics that are present among some Native North American peoples to every other situation in the world and a presumption to erase the voices of Native or African people to, to make their own choices, to decide who and when and how they share their traditions. Native people, just like African people, are not monolithic voice. There are many diverse Native tribal nations. Some don't want to share their ways at all. Some will under certain conditions. Part of the, you know, the, the big problem there, and you know, one of the big problems is that many Westerners of all backgrounds fail to respect the depth of training and humility and relationship that's required to actually be a lineage carrier in a traditional system. So there's a need to really be transformed by it, to learn the language, to surrender to uh, certainly a multi-year training. The training in Ifa practices makes my PhD look like kindergarten. It's mm-hmm. really, it's daunting. And, uh, and that's great. I know I'm not going to hit my head in the bottom of the pool. It's deep, deep waters. <laughs> that's part of why I chose to go there. At best, I will become a medium-sized fish in a big pond. And so one day, maybe. So that's humbling. And I mean, it's a big topic, but what we are speaking of implicitly when we talk about cultural appropriation is the the painful history of genocide and oppression in the West and about ancestrally who has permission to do what. And so it's a conversation that requires inclusion of the ancestors in it if we're going to bring nuance to the topic. 
so I'm just going to let that be. That was well said. Um, because I wanted to get around to the one thing that I kind of just forgot, and I, I tend to, and we shouldn't, which is in the person or the many people out there are saying, well, but what about adoption? How do I deal with that? I was adopted. I don't know my, you know, it was closed adoption back in the era of closed adoption. I don't know my bloodline. For sure. Yeah, for one, kindness. You know, that's a, um, not to presume to know how it is for everybody, but that's a challenging way to enter the world. So kindness is the first response. And second, your ancestors of blood are just as available to you as someone who has a ton of genealogical information. Relating with them may require a trust in your intuition a bit more than others. But metaphorically, someone standing at the beach with a lot of genealogical information can see, let's say, 30 miles on a clear day. If you're adopted, maybe it's like you just see fog and you can hear the waves. So you can't see that far out. But the ancestors are like the ocean. The person who has a lot of genealogical information has a different challenge of not projecting all their stories about the recent dead onto the much, much bigger field of ancestral consciousness. And so the ancestors are what's happening 100, 200, 1,500 miles off the shore. And so in that sense, the the main difference is a trusting of one's intuition on, on a ritual level. But I know adoptees who have gone very deep with work and feel very nourished by their ancestors of blood. It can be a real corrective in a good way. And it's tough. It's tough to not to not know. I don't presume to know what that experience is like, but from the outside it, it looks painful. Um, and and how, how would that person um, connect with the lineage of their adopted parents? They just do. Just drop right in. And I don't. I don't even use drumming when I do session work with people. I'm like, all right, tune into your mother's mother's people. If I say tune into someone else's grandmother, that's a bigger ask intuitively. But it's my sense that almost everyone has the ability to drop in and just connect with their own ancestors of blood. They're right. They're they're just that available. It's like you're rattling your own bones and saying, hey, over here, wake up. I'm calling you. Like, oh, you're calling this. It's been a thousand years. Good to hear from you. And so you might get sass from them, or it might take a minute. But I haven't seen really anybody who's sincere and tenacious, unable to connect with their own ancestors of blood. It's our birthright. It's very doable. It doesn't make you spiritual. It doesn't make you, like, cooler than other people. It's actually quite normal. And um, it's, it's good. Give it a try. And the listener actually has um, connected in and asked about um, teens or children doing this work. Like, have have you had young younger younger than adult people in any of your trainings? Yeah. Uh, sure, a little bit, and uh, it's fine if they are psychologically in a place to be able to do the work. It's kind of case by case. In some ways, it's a bit, it's better for the adults to handle it, especially when the dead are quite toxic and troubled. Like if there was a sexually abusive alcoholic grandfather who killed himself, then you might not want to have your 12 year old handle it unless they're unusually tapped in. But if you have Miners who are called to ritual and able to engage safely, then yeah, start them early. It's good. And look, the ancestor work we've been just discussing here is on the repair end of the spectrum. A lot of ancestral rituals about maintenance of already healthy relationships. And so inviting them to connect with ancestors that are already well is, is great. I know that for myself, I'm, as I'm listening to, I'm just thinking, for me, I started out life with only three grandparents already, so I was already one down. 
by the time I was six, I only had two left. And by the time I was out of college, they were all gone. And I know that for me, as just a person in the world, um, there was an aspect of that that left me feeling adrift and bereft. And having been included in the maintenance of a healthy relationship with these individuals, particularly the grandfather that I never, that was gone from the world, you know, before I was even born, that would have been profound for me as a person. I mean, even if you take the shamanic stuff out of the mix, just as a person in the world and my sense of belonging and lostness, um, that one thing I, I feel you know, could have changed everything. So I can really um, imagine how being uh, a, a child. Yeah, go ahead. There are some teachers, like, for example, Martin Prechtel or one of his students who's kind of gone in, in his own direction, Stephen Jenkinson, who emphasize uh, the orphan aspect of consciousness that, that especially, not only, but especially is present for European ancestry people in the Americas. This sense of, um, being disconnected from ancestral roots and ancestral earth honoring culture and all that. And to grieve that. So, so yes, yes, about being willing to feel the grief of that disconnection. And what then? It's my experience and not just personally, but what I've seen with others that it's, it's possible to come back into relationship with the well ancestors. This is an antidote to that disconnected orphan consciousness don't glorify a state of isolation and actually reconnect with the well ancestors they're available in the present and it's fine to talk about them but at a certain point they are yawning and are like yes yes talking about us you like the idea of us do you want to relate and so i'm saying take the leap off the cultural cliff break the agreements that say Spirits aren't real, and actually relate directly with the dead, with your own well ancestors. It's totally normal and available, and they bring blessing and protection and guidance and healing for a good life. So is there anything, as we come up on the end of our second hour here, is there anything about this topic that you would like to take five minutes to talk some more about? I have another question. But I, I want to be sure that you're able to really express what you feel is important to express to people about this this topic. I don't know why this comes to mind, but uh, it's what comes to mind. So I'm going to talk about it for a second. Thanks for the open, the blank check. As a therapist, there's a lot of really relevant literature and focus on relational intimacy. And the blind spot of almost all of Western psychology and psychotherapy is that it focuses on our relationships with other living humans, which is totally critically important and completely incomplete about uh, in terms of how we are able to relate. As living humans, we can have really intimate, meaningful, reciprocal relationships also with the ancestors, the not incarnate humans. We can have relationships with the other than humans, the trees, the plants, the mountains, the deities, etc. And culturally, one reason Western modern people are so harmfully, neurotically unwell, oftentimes, is that we are only opening ourselves to relationships with certain other living humans and maybe our pets. And it's imperative to reclaim our inherent ability to relate with a much wider field of beings. Be, you know, for all kinds of reasons, but, but psychologically speaking, because the amount of actual relational intimacy in our lives will increase. And if, like many people, any given listeners experience complex PTSD, crappy attachment from a traumatic childhood, etc., the medicine for that is healthy relationships. And it doesn't have to just happen with living humans. You can have earned attachment and relational healing with your connection with the earth, with the ancestors, with animals, etc. That's good news. And it is important that we expand our relational openness to let in the others. They miss us. 
ancestors miss us. There's a sweetness that we miss out on when we're not open to those relationships. And when, as soon as we open to them, so many people are like, oh my God, they're just kind. And I've just been suffering and just feeling really unloved by my family for so long. And now my people are being kind to me and I just kind of don't know what to do. It's even confusing. I'm just going to sit here and cry for a while. Great, do that. Sit and cry for as long as that takes. So, yeah, that's what I want to say. So now I'm going to ask you just to 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 dream a little bit here and and imagine a possible future. So imagine a possible near future in which all the people on the earth who actually are in good relationship with their ancestors continue. And let's say over 50% of everybody else who isn't is. So imagine that the majority of the people on the planet, not everyone, but the majority actually reconcile with their bloodline ancestors and open up to this intimacy that you're describing. What does that world look like in that dream? the, The measure of it will be the systemic changes. That bring about greater um, income equality, um, fairness, and respect, and honoring of our relationship with the other than humans. Reparations, reparations, and also just an improvement of conditions around the history of racism, sexism, all that. So that systemic change to a more just culture, for one, and a shift away from militarization and desecration of the earth and one toward honoring the embodied life and caring for the sanctuary of this planet and caring for the 25% of the people in this story that, or the, the remainder who don't get it yet and and just like not being jerks to them but being like hey you're, you know, we want you to be well too may you come on board with how good the bigger relationship is and and so uh a world that celebrates ancestral diversity, that sees as real leaders people who are masterful at relationship, not just with the humans, but with the other than humans, and so looks to indigenous elders and those who think and act similarly to them as inspirations and leaders because they're good at relationships with the others. And so it's relational. It's a relational paradigm that we need to move toward. And it sounds fun and engaging and all that, and it also brings with it profound moral accountability. We can't be like, it's all one, takuyasu, we're all related, and not at the same time be like aware of a profound grief of how we're more ethically failing the other than humans by causing their very bodies to disappear from this dimension through extinction. And so there's a gravitas that comes with awakening if you situate your awakening in relationship, which is the only real kind of awakening, I would say. Um, and so we would be busy addressing injustice with the humans and the others. That's how it would look, but joyfully. I mean, you can't be all heavy all the time and get good results. So, joyfully making repairs. Mm, beautiful. beautiful. Um, all right, Daniel, thank you so much for giving us uh, these two hours. It's really um, a deep, deep gift to um, us, our listeners right now, but also to the archives for people that will listen. And thank you, right. well, for your work. May I say a final thing? Sure. Uh, It's just that some people are called to assist others with this kind of ancestral repair. And my focus has shifted to training others on how to do that. And I feel really passionately that the, the need is profound. And it's possible actually to learn and carry out those kinds of services in a way that's uh, sustainable, that's even profitable in a way that keeps the work accessible to others. And so, especially for healer-type people who already have some kind of grounding and some tradition, if you're drawn to train in this work, do that. Whether it's with me or somebody else, but 
if you're called to it, take it seriously. There's a big need for this kind of repair. So be hopeful about um, letting your professional identity and your vocation include uh, cultural repair, ritual repair that, that involves the ancestors. So thanks. And those of you who would like to do it with Daniel, because I can't imagine not after today, but for those of you who would, just go to ancestralmedicine.org and and watch the calendar, look for it, read the book, engage, um, and email Daniel, daniel at ancestralmedicine.org. And um, I, I wholeheartedly agree this work is so needed, and if you feel called to it, um, train. You don't have to reinvent that wheel all by yourself. Feel free to reach out and train. And Daniel's given us this beautiful um, way to go about that. Um, so, Daniel, thank you. Yeah, thanks <laughs> Just, so much, Christina. Thanks for your service and your work. And for all of everything in your life that has come together that you could give us this book as well. Because for many, that's yeah. where they'll begin. So, thank you. Good. I know that yeah, books, books like this don't get written overnight. So. <laughs> yeah, I tried on the book. I really did try to, to give away everything I could in it. So I'm, I'm hopeful that it's a benefit also to experienced practitioners. So yeah, thanks. Yeah, yeah. I think so. Yeah, yeah. Um, so everyone, let's take a moment and give thanks to the ancestors, those who were here before us and met the challenges of their time and dreamt of a future, that we might be here now, the living, dreaming of those who are here to come. And may we we work with them uh, to do our work in a good way. So we give gratitude to the ancestors around, to the earth below, the sky above, and the heart that unites us all. Thank you, everyone. Have a good week.